Don't you kick the Hi, in. I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there, and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And um, I'm on my own this evening. We're not fully alone but uh, Kate isn't here Uh, obviously with the book and everything else we are trying to as practice as we preach and um, respect the ebb to boss the flow and we are both really tired so we are giving ourselves as much space and energy breaks as as we need at the moment Um, but I'm delighted to be joined by Arlena Allen and Arlena and I um, studied together we did our recovery coaching um, live classes together and Arlena is in the USA and um, Arlena is a teacher and author and a host of the award-winning recovery podcast the ODAT chat podcast and founder of Sober Life School she has been sober since, oh, you're going to challenge me with your American date here, um, <laughs> since the, 20, the 23rd of the 4th, 1994. Wow. Married for 23 years and mother of two amazing boys. Her class, Reinvent How to Rebuild Self-Esteem After Addiction, Heartbreak and Trauma, is being taught to those who suffered from low self-esteem, codependency, workaholism and many other issues. It is also being taught in the CA prison system to help provide healthy coping skills to inmates before they are released which is just amazing and we're going to dive into all that. Uh, Arlena says we only allow into our lives what we feel we deserve consciously or unconsciously. You can change what you believe and create the life of your dreams. Change your mind, change your life and yeah I'm delighted that you're here Arlena so thanks so much for joining us. Oh thanks for having me I'm really excited to be here. And um, we always start with a check-in. So uh, how are you doing? Where are you and and how are you doing? Well, uh, where am I? I am in Idaho in the U.S. I just moved here about a year. Everyone's like, why did you move to Idaho from California? (laughs) But uh, Idaho is very beautiful and the cost of living is so much cheaper out here. Um, Quality of life so much better but uh that's where i am and i'm doing fabulous can we swear on this podcast by the way yeah yeah i'm fucking fabulous (laughs) (laughs) so you've been sober since 1994 that's amazing um so yeah we always kind of start by just a, a little bit of the backstory about you know what brought you to the decision to go alcohol free so if we could start with that Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I, um, I'll just sort of start with like family of origin and and quickly work my way through it. I don't want to bore you with, in the US, we call it a drunkologue. Do you call it that as well? No. Or you just, people tell their story and they go on and on about the problem, like get to the good stuff already. (laughs) So I'll try not to bore you with all my, but when I was born, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to (laughs) start. Um, no, but listen, I have really nice parents, right? My, uh, my dad is from Kentucky, as we say here in the, uh, in the U S. Um, and my mother is from Mexico city. So I had a lot of, uh, 
that Southern praise Jesus <laughs> and the Ay Dios mío, gracias a Dios from my mama's side. So there was right. a lot of a lot of God growing up in my house and uh, a lot of religion. And I tend to separate now that I know better. <laughs> I separate religion from spirituality. Um, but I, I did not when I was growing up, you know, as a kid, you don't articulate or have the context for those types of big concepts. So I just uh, took in what was being said in my household. But I share that part because it comes into play at the end. And um, but between the beginning and the end, you know, I um, had some things happened early in childhood. I suffered some sexual trauma as a little girl at the hands of a neighbor. And then my parents divorced um, before I was seven years old. And those two events um, were very defining, defining, and it changed the trajectory of my life. It changed who I thought I was, what I believed I deserve. And um, it sort of changed everything from there. So um by the time I was about eight years old, I felt that my mom had gone out on a date. I have an older sister. She was the compliant child. I was the younger, rebellious child, <laughs> so to speak. But uh, And I never saw my parents drink or use or anything, so I'm not quite sure I got the idea to do this. But mom went out on a date. My older sister and I were left home alone, and I thought it would be a great idea to take a drink um, from that dusty old bottle that was in the cabinet. And I'll never forget how the alcohol burned my mouth and it burned all the way down. But Mandy, when it hit bottom, that warmth spread through my whole body. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized how bad I felt because when, when I drank those feelings of self-consciousness, self-hatred, self-loathing, which is all things I felt from those two experiences, I thought everything was my fault. I thought I was bad and dirty and just all those things. Once all those negative feelings were removed, I was left with this euphoria you know, and the juxtaposition between those two feelings was so dramatic. It was like burned in my psyche forever. It was the good feeling was so dramatic that I used to say that I chased it until I got sober. But the truth of the matter is I love feeling happy even today. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's be real. So from the first drink to the last, there was a series of what I called episodes where I would drink and then I, I would have like these two alter egos. It was like badass Betsy or wimpy Wendy because I was either fighting or crying <laughs> And then later I realized, oh, you know what? There was a third alter ego, slutty Karen. <laughs> she, she always she always ended up joining the party at some point along the line. Everybody, everybody loves <laughs> slutty Karen. But um, I mean, if I were to encapsulate my entire drinking, I, I like to joke around. I like to joke around about all this stuff because it's so tragic that if I don't laugh about it, it's kind of sad. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, humor is a great tool in resilience. So yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. So if I encapsulate the whole experience is that if it was in a bottle, a bag or blue jeans, I was doing it. <laughs> anything to fill the void, shall we say? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I totally bought into that idea that it was either love or money that was going to save me, like the whole Cinderella story thing. I thought Prince Charming was going to, I thought love was going to come and rescue me. 
That motherfucker never showed up. (laughs) (laughs) If he did, I was probably too drunk to recognize it. Or he was like, ew, gross. (laughs) Like, I was a hot mess. I mean, I wasn't exactly uh, princess material. But um, the funny thing is, is in the end, it was love that saved me. It just didn't show up the way I thought it would. It showed up when I finally was ready after, you know, at the t- very stereotypical, like sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had an evening with my sister that I would consider like my bottom where she and I got into, I physically hurt her. And um, just the next morning felt so humiliated and embarrassed and that incomprehensible demoralization that they talk about in certain literature that um, she went to Al-Anon and I was, you know, it's funny, Mandy, I was offended. I was like, what Mm. for me? What are you talking about? But that sort of began my questioning. Um, It's like, am I an alcoholic? Like, why can't I manage my feelings? Like, why do I hate myself so much? I was, I practically lived in the self-help section at Barnes and Noble trying to find the answer. I thought it was like seven spiritual laws for money or, you know, 30 minute abs, or I thought if I was (laughs) anything but alcohol, anything but I couldn't be, couldn't be the alcohol. But um, I desperately didn't want it to be the alcohol because that had been the thing that had saved me up until that point. Like my teenage years, I was so tortured that I medicated with drugs and alcohol because I think if I had to feel everything that I was feeling, I'm not sure I would have survived all of that, Um, all that Mm -hmm. self-hatred and self-consciousness. I mean, it's just, it wore me down. I felt old in my soul. By the time I got sober, but, and the reason I got sober is, you know, the que- one question led to another. It took me two years of that questioning, like 26 years ago, actually that, so that would have been 28 years ago. God, I'm old. Um, <laughs> you don't look it. Sobriety is fabulous. I know, right? Oh my, my, I, okay. Just a little side note. Um, I'll be 52 next month, but my no. Son- Yes, my skin looks so good because I did not spend 26 years drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes and doing drugs and all that. Right? The whole late night. I didn't know. I don't, I, uh, anyway, I've learned how to take good care of myself since I got sober. But, so uh, how old were you when you, when you hit your bottom and you sort of started that recovery journey? Well, the bottom happened at like 23. I kind of crashed and burned early, but it took me two years of sort of investigation because the threshold to entry for traditional programs, the only thing that was available back then was rehab and AA, and I didn't know about rehab. Mm. And uh, so the only thing I knew of was AA. Uh, My mom had actually dated somebody in the program when I was 14, and he's still sober. He old. I thought I was old. He old too. (laughs) But, um, God bless Al. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it took me two years. And so now I'm so grateful that people like you are putting, and I put out content too now around how do you decide, like, if you're in that thinking about it period, like the investigation, like wrestling with those questions, am I an alcoholic? Have I crossed the line? Am I addicted? Do I have to give it up forever? I mean, those are terrifying questions. They were for me. And, um, but at the time, so I just had to wrestle with it. I just had to bang my head against the wall until I just couldn't take it anymore. I literally had to stand at the abyss and look and try to decide whether I was going to die or or if I was going to live. It was really that, like, I hate to be, it sounds very dramatic, but 
It was. It was. I could have absolutely died during those two years because of the way I drank. It was so crazy. Mm-hmm. The drunk drive, yeah. and the putting myself into dangerous situations. It was, it, I mean, we hear stories, right? I'm sure you've heard stories of people who just didn't survive. So Yeah, I, and that's, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, people, we don't talk about it, we're starting to talk about it, but this kind of question of like blackout drinking or, oh, you know, yes. it only it only takes that one time, you know, and that I, I mean, yeah, I didn't have that kind of classic, you know, rock bottom or, you know, I, I never felt like I was powerless, like, thank God, you know, I found help early and all those things. But, you know, now looking back, it's like I was... St- there was still that kind of luck and chance, you know, every time you woke up and was just like, oh, okay. It's like, but how many more chances am I going to take? Was that just that one night when I don't remember how I got home where I have a vague memory of like waking up on the Metro, like at the other end of town kind of going, what am I doing here? And who's that guy? And do you know what I mean? So, Oh yeah. I'm very familiar with the whole, uh, (laughs) when you wake up in the morning and go, Oh my God, that's not my ceiling. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, and it's like, I mean, it's, it, it happens to so many people and we need to talk about it, you know, because especially for young women and, you know, it's it's dangerous. It's so dangerous. So we have a friend who um, had a nanny. She was probably in her early twenties and she was by no stretch like a daily drinker or anything, but she was a binge drinker. Yeah. And she binged one day and went on the wrong and uh, got in her car in a blackout and went the wrong way on a freeway and caused a fatality, went to prison for seven years for involuntary vehicular manslaughter. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's, I mean, cause there's been this change or get all political now, but there's been this change in the, in the way that they frame kind of alcohol deaths in the UK. It's not the same in France, but they, they now only sort of the statistics are only based on direct deaths, you know, direct links from, from alcohol deaths. So the numbers have gone really down. So it's like, Oh, you know, there isn't this problem, etc. But it's, because they've changed it to like you know directly so it's basically liver disease and and that's it so that you know whereas before it was you know uh, alcohol related deaths and then when you add those to the the list then you've got accidental death you've got you know cancer related deaths you've got all the other domestic violence all the other things that uh, alcohol is is related to um so it's a really frustrating sort of yeah government play because they like to look like they're they've got it all under control and they're looking at the wrong things really you know it doesn't help anybody that is not helping anyone let's I mean isn't that's I mean we refer to that as image management you know yeah yeah, it happens on a personal level too as people try to manage their image it's like yeah oh I don't have a problem I mean it's the only time you ever have to explain why you're not like why you're not drinking like I don't know what it's like with pot over there if it's as readily available as it is here but it's like no you don't have to explain why you're not doing drugs why do we have to explain why we're not drinking yeah Yeah. I know it's it's nonsense I mean and there is some really good kind of because of covid and what's going on now there are some good reports coming out of just like we actually need to have honest conversations and stop you know putting normalizing alcohol in in such a way but we'll see if that kind of filters through I hope so yeah um I'm interested because you said um there was kind of a strong 
religious aspect <laughs> to your upbringing. Yeah. Uh, and you had to separate that out of, you know, spirituality. Because there's something that I personally, because I'm not at all religious. And so one of the kind of uh, barriers for me to do anything like AA, you know, was this higher power, the spiritual, spiritual element, because I was like, well, I don't, be I don't believe I just don't. Um, and, and also I'm, I'm in my, my politics and the way that I was brought up was that religion was causing wars and it had, you know, a very negative sort of, oh, yeah. uh, sort of part of my, my childhood, and my sort of political upbringing was that, you know, established religions are dangerous things you know so so yeah I'm, I'm interested to uh, that that part of your journey if you don't mind just before we start no I, that's a, no that's a great that's a great place to focus and kind of drill down because there is so much misconception and ideas about how AA presents um, that information, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, higher power or spirituality for me, just, I'm actually very scientific and I love the ideas of, you know, laws of attraction and neuroscience and quantum physics. So if, if people can't get behind, you know, spirituality to me, that just means like the laws of the, like spirituality means like laws of the universe, like gravity. Like if you, I'm holding a pen and I release it, it's going to hit the ground. Right. And so I had to go through, I went through a period where I completely rejected the religion of my childhood because I had been begging God to fix me my whole life. Right. And uh, I clearly I was still human and I decided, I just kept like I was failing, 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 failing. And finally I gave up. I decided, you know what, if I can't be good, then I'm going to be good at being bad. <laughs> and, and so I was just like, I just rejected it. I rejected all of it. But when it came down to life or death mm. and I was in that complete black you know, endless bottom of despair. It was like, oh God, please help me. Mm. You know, some, like I needed something outside of me. I had shot all the angles. I played all the tricks. I could not fix myself. And so I needed help. And it felt like every book that I read didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't getting fixed. Mm. And so I felt like there was something, but I didn't know what it was. And so, you know, I, the reason I sort of made the transition into recovery is that I met these, I was in an outside sales position for, for this company and two of my customers were in the program, Mitch and Randy, and they sort of Eskimoed me as we say here out of the cold and into like the 12 step <laughs> community. And that was all that was available at the time. But I really, um, I was so like resistant to like religion and they just kind of broke it down for me. They were like, okay, just, it's about creating a higher power of your understanding. And I think that is the biggest misconception. You know, they call it God. I think mostly because it's just, you say God and everyone's kind of on board. Like we all kind of get it. It ain't you. There's something, you know, mystical. I don't know what it is. And they were like, you can create your own. And early on, they told me, if you have a problem with the word God, chances are you have a problem with someone else's God. So you can figure out what your own is. Like, just figure out something. Like, if you could have fixed yourself, you would have. So what, you know, so it's just like a power greater than yourself. So like me and you together, we're stronger than me by myself. 
right? Like when I'm emotional, my perspective is so clouded. I can't, I can't see clearly. I can't think clearly. And that's why I need you. I need you. Cause haven't you had that experience? Everyone's had this experience when a friend comes to you and they're like, Oh my God, he did this. And he did that. And oh my God, I'm in such a mess. And clearly you're like, Oh, well, this is, this is exactly what you need to do. I can see the situation clearly. You just need to do this, but we're being ruled by our emotions and our, our logic brain doesn't have the power to overrule emotions. We, we do everything lot emotionally first and we justify logically later. And I didn't know any of this. I didn't know any of this before I got sober. And so I, I had to wrestle with the, I was so desperate to be sober. I was willing to set, they say, set aside everything that you think, you know, and just mm. start fresh. And so I was like, okay, fine. So I, I just sort of made a small little, I just put a chink in the armor and was like, okay, I'm willing to just consider new ideas. Like clearly my way is not working. Yeah. I need a different way. And if you say that this is going to fix me, I'll, I was so desperate. I, I was willing to try it. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of one of the key conversations that we've been having and kind of mulling over in terms of everyone working together and bringing you know as we're both she recovers coaches you know mm -hmm. the patchwork and you know I looking at what, what people need because I think it's like you know I can understand that for some people I can understand that you're you're at the as you say the edge of the abyss and it's like someone something help me and you know I need that and yet for me, I wasn't at that point. So that, no wonder it doesn't make sense, you know? So I think it's it's that thing of like, well, where are you at? Where are you at? And what do you need right now? And and rather than having like one blanket, there's only one way to recover. It's like, well, where are you at today? And what do you need to, to get better? And what agency do you have? Because, you know, we talk about that in coaching. It's like, how much can they, how much agency has this person got to be able to, design their own kind of recovery you know or do they need to go to treatment and you know that, that that's where the line of coaching is right isn't it yeah absolutely I mean so you have to meet people where they are right and and listen I'll be honest like I honestly don't know if that my if my mind has I've, if I've been my psyche has been completely indoctrinated you know with religion right because I was brainwashed early. <laughs> yeah. Shall we, shall we say? So I don't know. I mean, those ideas are so deeply implanted in my mind, but it doesn't matter to me because the science yeah. that, that, that I've come to understand is, um, justifies and explains a lot of the concepts that religion was trying to teach. You know, there is a lot of, you know, human element that makes it challenging on a variety of <laughs> on a variety of levels. But um, that aside, I, I have found, you know, a power greater than myself that I do try to, you know, it, but it feels more like universal mm. source energy type stuff. And at the end of the day, I mean, I've been wrestling with this for a long time. I don't care anymore. It's like, I just stick with my feelings. I focus on what I, what I do want, not what I don't want. Um, I, I really, appreciate a lot of the neuroscience and different like reprogramming techniques I've learned. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. I mean, meet people where they are, start where you are and figure out what works for you. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, it's, I, I asked the same question of 
in the opposite sense do you know what I mean the fact that I was you know I had a certain political kind of socialist upbringing that it was like well um yeah why can't I ask those questions about my own spirituality and that's part of my I guess that's why it always comes up when I'm like so tell me about because obviously it's it's something that is ticking over in my brain it's like what do you what do you mean you believe something <laughs> why you know why, why can't I so I we'll see I mean we'll see and 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 I love the way of approaching it. it's like who actually cares who it doesn't matter it doesn't matter just whatever works for you no absolutely okay so yeah I'd love to sort of dive into your course how you work with people because it's very much about self-esteem and self-worth and how that's kind of then the story of how now that's playing out in in other fields it's a great sort of interesting story yeah i mean so after studying this i'm an obsessive learner i'm an obsessive learner and and i think all i think all teachers at heart really are obsessive learners um and i know you if you told me when i was in high school that i would be an obsessive learner i thought what the hell are you smoking <laughs> That is not, but, um, when I got sober, like I was presented with all this new information and it began to expand my mind and I was like, oh my gosh. And so I just developed this thirst for knowledge because, um, it's, and it's actually applying the information that's so important. So that's why I developed the self-esteem class because the premise of the whole class most people I'll say are trying to solve the wrong problem. Like I did in the beginning, right? Like I was looking, I thought if I made enough money or I found the right man, or if I was the right size, the right dress size, then I would be happy, right? It doesn't work that way. It works in the opposite. I have found it's what you believe will manifest in your reality. We only allow into our lives what we believe we deserve, right? So if we change if we change our beliefs, we are actually at the cause of life, not at the effect. And that was also new information for me. I thought I was a victim. I thought life was happening to me. I did not understand that I was largely at the cause, at the cause. And obviously not, you know, not when I'm a little kid. And there's everyone's going to come in with like, no, no, that's not true because of this. So there are caveats, you know, however, um, um, it all, people are trying to solve the wrong problem. It's all about self-esteem. It's all about what you feel you deserve. Um, so my class, um, actually started, I've run, um, several groups through this class and it continues to evolve, but the basic premise is the same. There are, um, limiting negative beliefs that we have about ourselves that are implanted in our subconscious mind. Some of these thoughts are actually very conscious. I, I, t- I talk to a lot of women who have like this negative self-talk on, on a loop. You know, they talk about the mean girl, they talk about imposter syndrome. It's like, these are all concepts that are rooted in self-esteem. And, you know, so if we, if we are addressing the core issue, which is what you believe you deserve, then everything on the surface changes. So relationships change. I can't tell you how many women that I talk to who come to me and it's like, oh, my boyfriend, I'm in this toxic relationship or something like that. It's like, well, I don't even tell my girlfriends to leave their 
partners anymore because number one, that doesn't work. And number two, that's not the issue. It's they allow into their lives what they believe they deserve. So my work has always been about rebuilding self-esteem and those toxic relationships naturally fall away. So, and I started this class, um, it started, um, I started teaching it in the women's prison system because it, so it was kind of a cool story. Um, I worked with, I don't, are you familiar with, uh, Dr. Stephanie Covington, her wrote a women's way through the 12 steps. She wrote that book about 25 years ago. And I had been mm-hmm. using that workbook for, for many years. And anyway, she was a guest on my podcast and, um, when I had this class, I was like, Hey, do you have any groups of women that I could, you know, test this out on or practice with or expose this? She was like, well, why don't you record it and put it on a, a zip drive and send it to me and I'll submit it to the women's prison system in California. And I was like, wow, how did that even happen? And I started thinking about it and it was kind of an interesting, like I'd never intended for that to happen, but I was like, I was telling you earlier, my father passed away almost a year ago. And before he died, he used to do a lot of work with the men in the uh, local jail. He used to teach um, GED. It's sort of like a high school equivalency exam. So he would go in there and, and, and try to help these guys. And it was just kind of a cool way that this sort of unfolded. Like I didn't plan to be presenting to women in prison, but it just kind of felt like a little a little wink from dad that yeah, was kind of all beautiful story. Yeah. And it's also being taught in the air. Now it's being taught in the Arizona women's um, rehabilitation center as well. So it's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Well yeah. done. And, and I mean, you're so right. And it was such a kind of, I mean, it is the question of, of why women develop, I mean, hugely develop problematic relationships with anything whether that's a substance thing you know behavior it's this question of self-esteem not for everyone but you know I'd say 80% of of women that I've worked with you know don't believe in themselves or don't feel like they have worth or value and I mean listen every single person has a level of self-esteem and some people, the women I work with typically are kicking ass in every aspect of their lives, but one, right. So it's either drinking, it's relationships. It's, you know, I, I, I have a, you know, I have, um, I work with some doctors and some, I don't know why the doctors and lawyers like me, but I have (laughs) several of those. It's like, they are kicking ass, but somewhere in the back of their mind, they are overachieving because in the back of their mind, they don't, they have to, that's how they get, uh, validation yeah. is through achievement, which I totally relate to. So I, I would argue that everybody has issues around self-esteem, but, and they show up where in a problem that you've tried to solve, but can't. So it turns out in self, um, self-sabotage, uh, if you get close to a goal and you can't quite get there, it's like I've seen women who keep trying to lose weight and they get close to their goal or sabotage, or they actually get to the goal and then they can't stay there. That's all. Those are all rooted in self-esteem issues. You know, we we don't women don't put our we don't put ourselves first. You know, we everything is like you do for others, but you know, there's you know the analogy of put the mask on yourself first, put the, yeah, 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 yeah. that's a, a, an analogy for a reason because we tend to take care of everybody else first and put ourselves last. So what are some kind of actionable steps that people can 
do to start just I mean obviously like working with I mean that's why you can read a book about it but nothing happens right but you know is you know what sort of actionable steps could people do to just to start that bringing down the noise of that negative talk I suppose yeah it's so funny it's 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 not funny but like peculiar I suppose because um the answer to building self-esteem is to invest in yourself but then people don't feel good enough to for it so it's like a catch-22 but every once in a while somebody will find just enough courage to take some action or they'll just have that point where they are just so sick and tired of being sick and tired of whatever issue that they're struggling with that they're willing to do something different and the exercises I typically start with and I would recommend this for anyone is to do a morning self-care routine and that involves for me it's like prayer and meditation and you can define prayer and meditation any way you want Um, but the idea is that you set an attention set an intention for the day you ask for help in some way. Um, a prayer tends to be for me, it's more around surrendering and getting in touch with my priorities, right? My priorities is, are, is that, um, you know, I, I just pray cause that's how I am <laughs> after all this time is, you know, help me to use all that I am, all that I hope to be for a purpose greater than myself, you know, or take my fear from me, like whatever's out there, just take my fear and help me, you know, use all that I am for a purpose greater. And then meditation is just all about calming the mind. And there are so many studies out there on the benefits of meditation. And I'll just say that in the beginning, meditation is sitting still and listening to some music and focusing on your breath and bringing your attention back to the breath a thousand times in five minutes. If you have to, people say, Oh, I can't meditate. I can't meditate. Bullshit. You can like that is meditation just showing up and sitting there for 10 minutes. That is meditation. And the spaces between thoughts grows with practice. Like you wouldn't go to the gym and pick up a hundred pound dumbbell. Right. Yeah. So you don't expect yourself to be able to maintain five minutes of non-thought because your brain's not used to it yet. Your brain's job is to think. So that's what it's going to do. It's about you being conscious and present in the moment to bring it back to the breath and just focus on that for 10 minutes. And then um, I typically read something kind of inspirational and I have something called the five minute journal, which I'm obsessed with because it's three things I'm grateful for, three things that would make the day great and a positive affirmation. Um, so your subconscious mind is interesting. It'll believe whatever you tell it, you know, beliefs are actually not rooted in truth because, uh, it's just an idea that's repeated. So it's important to start repeating ideas that are, um, empowering instead of disempowering. And then, so that is the morning self-care routine. And then like in my class, I do this thing called the forgiveness process. What we do first, we do the, um, you know, what would your ideal day look like? right? Because you need a vision, something that is so inspiring and exciting to you that it pulls you forward. Because the next week we do the um, identify limiting beliefs, like we identify the limiting beliefs, which is really (laughs) negative, right? But then we end the class on a high note with reframing those negative beliefs. So that can be a little bit tricky. There's so many resources online. So you can do this all yourself for free. (laughs) <laughs> just FYI, you know, you don't need to pay me. Just, just fucking do it. <laughs> just do the work. <laughs> damn it. 
Um, okay. But the next class is something called the forgiveness exercise. So most of us are dealing with so much guilt and shame just from life. Like nothing bad has ever had to happen to you for you to feel guilty and shame, right? They're, they're, the standards for women are so impossibly high. It's like, you have to be a certain size. You're too fat. You're too skinny. It's like, give me a bugging break. Okay. So um, it's like, oh, you're not good enough. You're not. It's like we get so many mes- messages that we're not good enough the way we are. Yeah. So and it's not even all that conscious, but I do this forgiveness exercise where I have women bring a picture of themselves at like four or five years old. A clear, like you look at this little girl who is innocent, not responsible for anything, and you look at her and she's still inside you. And, um, you know, the first part of the class, we write down all our crimes, everything that you like, we call them thought crimes. Maybe they're actual crimes. I don't know. <laughs> I'm but, disclosing uh, nothing. <laughs> I'm disclosing nothing. Yeah. So you write down everything that you feel guilty about, basically, right? And then, and then you look at this picture of this little girl who's still inside you, and you talk to her, and you tell her that you're never going to abandon her ever again. That if you knew better, that you would have done better. That all those things that you subjected her to are not her fault. And it's such a powerful exercise. And at the end, it's like, you are forgiven. If you needed permission to be forgiven, you are forgiven. Yeah. And permission is such a key thing. It's so interesting. Like how, how much we still seek permission, you know, to, to to give up. I mean, you know, the amount, and this is, I think that one of the kind of tricky bits about working in early intervention or working with people that are still questioning, because essentially, you know, when you have that big, the big rock bottom, the drama, it's like, okay, I, right, there's no other choice right now. But when it's like before, that's what people are seeking. And that's really when they don't kind of get the right support. You know, you go to the doctor. I went to the doctor. I'm a little bit oh my worried God, about they know nothing. drinking. Yeah. And they're like, well, just drink less. You know, and that <laughs> happens all the time. I know. It drives like, me insane. That's when you're looking, you're looking for permission for someone to say, okay, stop, like sobriety is great, you can stop, whereas you're just given permission to drink more, you know, to carry on. Yeah. And it's like, so yeah, permission is so interesting. And it's like, how can we nurture our own permission? Well, you know, we don't have to do, the thing is, is that the beauty of an experience like this, whether you call it alcoholism or not, is that when you know, they say that alcoholism is a disease of isolation and my mind connection is the cure. Like we don't have to do this alone. It's like, yes, we can give ourselves permission, but it's, there is something magical and beautiful about how we come together. You know, sometimes they call it trauma bonding and we, we laugh about it. Like it's a, you know, a toxic relationship. You bond over trauma, whatever. I don't know, but there is something magical in the way we do bond through our trauma. Like I get, like, I get your kind of crazy and I know that you get mine. Right. I know that you get it to your, to your core. And I know you don't hold any judgment towards me for my drinking because you knew that at some point I lost the ability to choose. Right. And so I don't condemn people for that. It's like, I want to help them out of that. Yeah, and so that's so true. The per- their permission is really important because that is one of the biggest barriers to receiving. 
is that I don't, I don't feel worthy of the solution, right? Why, why, why don't you feel worthy? It's like, well, I did all these bad things. Well, if you knew better, you would have done better and you are forgiven. Like if you need permission to let that shit go, granted, you don't. Yeah. And really that was the whole purpose of religion. The whole idea behind Jesus was that he was there to come and forgive, but it got so, it got so twisted. The message got so twisted along the line. And, but every major religion does have a component of confession and forgiveness. And so listen, you don't got to go to church to go do that. You just, you come talk to me and Mandy and we'll help you. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. And I hadn't, I mean, because definitely for me kind of community was when you know I got I got sober about sort of hmm, well I started getting sober about seven years ago seven eight years ago and I did a year and then I was like you know because I had burnout and my mental health was really bad and so that was a very dark kind of period of my life and I you know have trauma that I hadn't dealt with and all the stuff came um, and I did a year and then I was like, oh, you know, I went on antidepressants, went to therapy, stopped drinking, felt much better, funnily enough. Um, and <laughs> yeah, weird. <laughs> and then and so I was like, you know, that classic thing, well, I can have a glass of wine every now and again because um, I'm better now. And that went on for about two and a half years. And then when I finally stopped the second time round, it was that connection it was you know making friends and making really that kind of like and funnily enough it was kind of people on Instagram and and a lot of the she recovers women because there was that bigger kind of um conversation it wasn't just about drinking you know because for me it was very much like that's a symptom like and oh, then yeah. it's like when you're talking about trauma and all those things it's like oh okay I get it now like that's that's the what was behind it you know um that's and yeah, and, now, and seeing it in that way, yeah, yeah, and seeing and seeing that now in the way you described it, I really, I really love that, and it, it, it sort of is very validating for what we're doing, I suppose, in the UK, and just you know that community and that validation, and yeah, giving other people permission and sitting around with a group of women or men or whatever, and saying, "I get you," and and it's fine, you can let that stuff go; it's mm-hmm. gone, you know. I mean, yeah. yeah, we don't have to do it on our own. Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and it, honestly, there's really no, like some people are so proud about white knuckling, but honestly, there's no courage required for that. There's no courage, like to like Brene Brown does a lot of work about vulnerability. There is power. It's so, it takes courage to be vulnerable, but there's such power in it. And empathy is the antidote to shame. But how can we receive the empathy until we are willing to be transparent about what we feel so guilty about, what we feel so, such shame about, right? You have to really bring it to the light in order for it to be validated. Yeah, love it. And so, you know, um, obviously that's that's one of the courses that you run and you work one-to-one with women, men, I presume, just men, women? I've been everyone? just, I, I've been just, I'm so indoctrinated in the 12 steps where the women work with the women, but I am open to working with men. I have worked with men in the past, um, especially around relationships. Um, that's usually where people come to me. I, I do, but the self-esteem class I think is so is so clutch, right? Like it's, that is the core, like alcohol is, but a symptom overeating is, but a symptom 
sex addiction, shopping, sugar, it's all a symptom of a deeper problem that all stems back to self-esteem. And so, um, you know, the rest of the class is that I, we teach, a, there's a, a section on boundaries. We talk about how to, you know, not, not just teaching people how to treat us, but how we treat ourselves, basically, like where are the limits? And then how do we sort of take care of ourselves within those limits? And then, um, yeah, and the, the, what I love about my class, if I may say so, is that we do the work in class, right? Yeah. I don't give you, like all the information is already out there for free, but when you, this is a, this is a funny thing. I used to teach this for free all the time. I still teach it for free in the prisons and stuff, but people don't do the work until they put a little skin in the game, you know? And with women, it's like, we like to do these things in pairs. So I will occasionally offer like a, bring a friend free mm. <laughs> type of situation, but it's better to, to do it with a friend. But if you don't invest, but you know, what's funny, Mandy is the people that get it for free. Don't do the work. They don't show up to class. They don't do the work. So you have to put some skin in the game. Is that a saying in the UK, in the UK? Do people say that? No, but I mean, I've heard it enough in the, in the U S to understand it, but yeah, you have to, you have to kind of invest, yeah, invest, invest, a little you have bit, to invest you know? in yourself. And the funny thing is it's like, it's 200 us dollars to do this class for six weeks for heaven's sakes. It's a lot of information that we're downloading on you. Um, but it's like, I used to spend that in an evening. Right. <laughs> I, used to, I, I will spend that on shoes occasionally if they're nice enough <laughs> i have spent 10 times that on louis vuitton bags <laughs> you know and what does it give me it's just like a little what do they call it? a little status symbol it's stupid yeah. it's stupid it's just another band-aid but you know for a mere 200 dollars in six weeks of your time you can absolutely start to change your change your life it's no exaggeration yeah, it sounds it sounds amazing. It really does. And um and so what other tell me a little bit about your podcast. I mean, we are going to come on and talk I about know, our book so at yeah. some point. Um, yeah. yeah, how did how did that start? Why did you start it? What does ODAT mean? <laughs> ODAT stands for one day at a time. It's O D A A T chat.com. And the funny thing is is when I named it, I didn't really think about it. I thought everybody knew what ODAT meant. Turns out, no. <laughs> That's a bad idea. Or they spell it O-D-A-T. Yeah. Like for whatever reason, that second A doesn't matter. I don't know. I don't know why. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I didn't really think it through. But I was attending this 6 a.m. meeting every day for years. If 6 a.m. is early. And if people are showing up, it's because they're hardcore and very serious about their recovery. So it was an amazing group. But um, sadly, my friend was um, at the meeting at 6 a.m. And then she died three hours later in a, car, in a single car accident. And um, I had been toying with the idea of doing a podcast, but I was so sort of indoctrinated into this idea that we don't do promotion at the level of press, radio, and film type of thing that I was hesitant. But after my friend Gina passed away, I realized that this was a dream that was on my heart and it wouldn't go away. It felt like an inspired idea and I just could, it just wouldn't go away. And after she died, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to die with this dream on my heart. Like, I don't know how much time I have left. So that's why I started the podcast. Cause I knew that I get out. I used to get asked to speak all the time. Usually, you know, speak at meetings like once a week, twice a week or something. It's kind of a lot. Um, 
But I figure, and I obviously have a lot to say, as you may have <laughs> surmised by this point, but um, I just love it so much. I just love it so much. So I, I've been doing it for almost four years and 127-ish episodes. And I've had some amazing experiences. People reach out to me and tell me that I've had an impact on their life. And there is no greater high to me than knowing that my suffering wasn't for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's been good. It's been so good. And so any other projects or plans coming up? Things, other things going on? Yeah. I mean, so I'm working on a book. I'm, I'm like fangirling a little on you. I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to harass (laughs) you at some point for some help. But Working on a book, but I, this the self esteem class is big. I'm starting this, um, launching a new class in. I think I'm going to have it ready by November. But it's like how to stop drinking, you know, without rehab or AA. I wish I had. I wish I had the resources that would have shortcut that two year period for me. Yeah, yeah. I wish I would have had something. So, I think after 26 years of studying all this information, I've I found some really good shortcuts. You don't have to be standing at the abyss to start, you know, getting some information and get to the core. Let's get, let's solve the core problem, you know, quit messing around with all the diet and exercise and money (laughs) or or chasing relationships. And so with, uh, with your, with your course, with your class, how often do you run that? Every six weeks or about how do people s- find out? Yeah, so the course, uh, you can find out more about the class at selfesteemcourse.com. That's where the class is. Um, I have some resources at soberlifeschool.com. I'm creating some sort of a, a self-esteem toolkit, so to speak. So just a little... It's like here, like the three, you know, like I talked about the self-care exercise and some other things to get people started, but I find that everybody wants a little bit of feedback, you know, Mm. people want feedback and am I doing it right? Or I'm coming up against this problem. I don't quite know how to handle it. So um, that's why the course, you know, and then of course people can work with me one-on-one through an intensive, like if you really are serious about quitting drinking and you don't want to go to AA or rehab, then I have a process that they can work with me one-on-one privately. Like they can do it anonymously or we can get on zoom and do it that way. Um, so yeah, there's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I am here to help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Amazing. So we always sort of uh, finish the podcast with a tip of the day and your reason to love sober. So your reason to love being sober. So what would be your tip for people today? Oh man, I got to pick just one. I would say feed your brain, feed your brain, something positive. I mean, there's so, there is a ridiculous amount of information out there. It's like, you have a podcast. I have a podcast. There are so many podcasts out there. Um, books. Uh, I'm obsessed with audiobooks. Yeah, me too. Oh That's my goodness. Such a new addiction. I mean, listen, it's better than listening to your negative inner self talk. That was really important for me when I first got sober is that I had a fair amount of negative self talk on loop. And so I used to listen to Marianne Williamson. She would lecture on the Course in Miracles. And I found that endlessly 
engaging. Like it just grabbed me and I was like, oh my gosh. So I used to listen to her lectures um, obsessively. And what that did for me is that it sort of drowned out. It just didn't leave any space for the negative thinking. That's really interesting. I hadn't even, what I used to do, like when I first quit that the first time, which was the hardest time I used to, I was really robotic and I used to because my kids were still quite young, I would put the kids in the bath. And then when I got them, because my husband used to, well, still works away. So I was basically like a single mum during the week. And I would get the kids out the bath. And then I would run the bath again, really hot water. Um, and then I put the, you know, I'd read the kids a story and put them to bed. And then by the time I got back downstairs, I don't know how I managed to work out this system. But it was a good system. Um, then the water would be like perfect temperature. And then I just get in the bath with like some lavender and then I'd listen to Radio 4, which is a BBC Radio 4, which is all information. So it's really interesting you say that because I hadn't actually connected that what I was doing was feeding my brain essentially. And it really felt like that because I was, um, yeah, I, I remember sitting there thinking, wow, like I would never have learned any of this stuff. And it was really random programs. I mean, it was like about science and about, you know, astronomy. And then there'd be sort of programs, then there'd be a play, then there'd be stuff about kind of, oh, anything, you know, books and literature. And I was just like, wow, I wouldn't have learned any of that if I'd been drinking. And it was a real powerball. So yeah, I like it. Yeah. I validate your. Uh, well, thank <laughs> your you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and what what's your reason to love sober? I mean, why not? I mean, it's so funny. It's like there's all this trend about doing ayahuasca and just doing all this other <laughs> crazy stuff. And I'm like, some guy asked me, are you going to do it? And I was like, no. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, why would I? My life is fucking awesome. Like, I'm in my dream home. Like you people on the podcast can't see us, but you know, I have my own office now. Like my, I have two boys that are grown now, 20 and 16. They've never seen me loaded. I've never had to apologize for something I did loaded. Uh, my husband and I have been together since I was five months sober and so far so good. And I mean, I love the woman I am today. I worked really hard to create this person that I just love. I, I'm, I'm a helper and I feel really good about that, but I, I did a lot of work to resolve all that guilt and shame. And, and now that I know some, some tricks and some practical applications, um, I love the purpose and meaning that my life has today. So why would I drink? Yeah, I love that. Oh, it's been amazing and a real inspiration. So thanks so much. And I, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a chat with just chat it through because it, it helps right that's what it is it's having these conversations you're yeah. like yeah we're totally badass yes we are. yay <laughs> yeah because it's true like it it's it was hard like mm-hmm. bad shit happened in our lives and and we turned it around so it's really nice to be able just to celebrate that and absolutely and yeah so thank you so much and obviously all your details will be in the notes and um yeah, if, if you're immediately kind of worried about your drinking, please reach out to Kate and I or go to your doctor or, you know, uh, Soberistas have an anonymous uh, Ask the Doctor service, so you can reach out to that. Um, just remember you're not alone and uh, we're always here to chat. So, and and as is Arlene and she's doing amazing work, so go and check her out. So see you next week for more chat. Yay.